Father, I come before you and I ask that you would help me now as I stand before your people and I stand before them with your word. I ask that you would speak through me. You would give me clarity to communicate the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ, which is such a, as we read a moment ago, a tremendous gift. It is wonderful. And Father, I get the privilege of being able to stand up here this morning and preach it. I pray that you would give the people that are standing or sitting before me a mind of understanding, a heart to receive it. May you plow the ground this morning. I thank you for your word. I thank you for the treasures, the truth that is in it. And also as we talk about wonderful men that you have used this morning. Father, the privilege of being able to look back upon church history and see how not only are these historical events, but you are working through all of them. Father, in all these events, we hear the words of our Lord Jesus Christ. I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. I thank you for the Lord Jesus Christ. In his name I pray. Amen. You can be focusing your attention to the first chapter of Galatians. In the letter to the Galatians, Paul is writing to a region of churches that is in Galatia. And he is writing to them because they have begun to believe that the work of Christ is not sufficient to save them, to bring about the full fruition of salvation. They have come to believe that they need the law also. They have come to believe that they need to perform works. And what does Paul have to say to this? What does Paul have to say to this construing of the gospel? Look with me in chapter 1 beginning in verse 6. Paul writes, I am astonished that you are so quickly deserting Him who called you in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel. Not that there is another one, but there are some who trouble you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. But even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one we preach to you, let him be accursed. As we have said before, so now I say again, if anyone is preaching to you a gospel contrary to the one you received, let him be accursed. And Paul will, after he writes this passage, he will go on to tell the Galatians that the gospel that he originally preached to them was in fact a gospel not created, not started, not come up with by man, but by God. And he will also begin to tell them that he, as an apostle, was not called by man to preach this gospel to them, but by God. And then he goes on to tell them about justification by faith alone. He begins to tell them the, the faultiness of what will happen whenever you trust in works and not in faith. And so in light of unfolding justification by faith, he says this in chapter 3 to the Galatians. He says, O foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? It was before your eyes that Jesus Christ was publicly portrayed as crucified. Let me ask you only this. 
Did you receive the Spirit by works of the law or by hearing with faith? Are you so foolish? Having begun by the Spirit, are you now being perfected by the flesh? Did you suffer so many things in vain, if indeed it was in vain? Does he who supplies the Spirit to you and works miracles among you do so by works of the law or by hearing with faith? Just as Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. Know then that it is those of faith who are those who are the sons of Abraham. And the Scripture, foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham, saying, In you shall all the nations be blessed. So then, those who are of faith are blessed along with Abraham, the man of faith. Now, you can really see the heart of what Paul is saying here in verse, in chapter 3, verse 3, where he says, Are you so foolish? Having begun by the Spirit, you accepted all of this by faith in Jesus. Are you so foolish then that now you're going to work for the rest? How can you receive something that you did not earn and then work for the rest of it? That is what Paul is trying to get across to them. And also, he's only writing this letter to a region of churches. I don't know how many, probably maybe four or five churches in the region of Galatia, maybe less than that, I'm not sure. But imagine that the whole church was guilty of what the Galatians are guilty of here. Walking away from the gospel, adding to it, taking away from it, which is essentially destroying all of it. 500 years ago, you didn't have to imagine this. It was true. The church as a whole, except for a few lights throughout history, had sunk into darkness. And it was in desperate need of reform. I mentioned in my announcements this morning that we would be looking at what is known as the Protestant Reformation. 500 years ago, God used a a select group of men throughout history. It wasn't just one, it wasn't just two, it was many men throughout history. God used to recover the truth of the gospel. And so this morning we're going to be spending a lot of time talking about this movement, not because I want to enlighten you about historical events, but because at the heart of all of this is good news. The good news of Jesus Christ. And I want you to see the power of this good news and what happens when it is understood and when it is delighted in. So the time period of this darkness is the early 1500s, known as the medieval ages. And you'll get a flavor of why it's called the medieval ages as we go through this. The main influence of the day is Roman Catholicism. And that influence has spread far and wide. All of Europe, except for a small part in Eastern Europe, confess the Roman Catholic faith. How could this be? How could the church come to something like this? How could they walk away in such a big group away from the good news of Jesus? 
I think Michael Reeves gives a good and simple answer to a complex situation. He writes, Unsurprisingly, all the roads of medieval Roman Catholicism led to Rome. The Apostle Peter, to whom Jesus had said, You are Peter, and upon this rock I will build my church, was thought to have been martyred and buried there, allowing the church to be built, quite literally, upon him. And so, as once the Roman Empire had looked to Rome as its father, now the Christian Empire of the church looked still to Rome as its mother, and to Peter's successor as father, papa, or pope. That's where you get the name pope. There was a slightly awkward exception to this, the Eastern Orthodox Church, severed from the Church of Rome since the 11th century. But every family has a black sheep. Other than that, all Christians recognized Rome and the Pope as their irreplaceable parents. Without Father Pope, there could be no church. Without Mother Church, there could be no salvation. So you can pretty much guess why the church sank into darkness, right? You have so much weight being put on a man, a sinful man at that. They, like the Galatians, were getting sidetracked by other things. So much so that they were not leading people to the freedom that Christ has purchased, but bondage in religious slavery. They came to believe not only that the Pope was the head of the church, but the channel through which all of God's grace flowed. And so that resulted in, for everybody else, if you wanted to receive salvation, you had to go through the Pope and his institution, which, unsurprisingly, was very works-based. When men get their hands on salvation, this is what it turns out to be. Works. We were talking a lot about that in Sunday school this morning, weren't we? God created the gospel, not man. And I want to be talking a lot about kind of bringing up the spirit of the times, I guess you could say, as we go throughout this. So I want to tell you a little bit about it first off. Just to really, I want you to be able to put yourself into the shoes of these people that lived in that time period. So you would think that, okay, why don't they just pick up the Bible, read it for themselves, and be like, look, dude, you're wrong. Okay, it says right here. Well, they couldn't do that because the Bible in their day was in the Latin language, which was not the common language. So nobody could read it. And all of their church services were recited in Latin. So they even showed up to the church service and didn't know what was going on because they did not understand. So you could see how the Roman Catholic Church, the Christian Empire known at the time, had really created this structure of power to keep people beneath them. They basically depended upon what they told them. And most of the priests didn't even know what was going on. Because they, too, most of them, didn't know and understand the Latin language enough to where they could adequately teach the Bible. So these people were literally in religious bondage. They were looking for freedom. So in the midst of all this comes a man by the name of Martin Luther. I love Martin Luther. He's very quirky. He's uh, As we go through his life, 
you will see how God is definitely the the initiator in all of these things because this man, there's no way. So Martin Luther is very serious about religion, but not in a good way. His view of God is that he is very, he's a very angry God. He is waiting for the chance to punish people because they have not met his requirements. You have not met my requirements, zap, type deal. That's what his view of God is like. Now, it's more complex than that, so I don't want you to think that Martin Luther's an idiot or anything like that. He's a very intelligent man. But his essential view of God is that he's very angry and waiting to punish sinners. No good news. So you can imagine that that would make someone very scared of God. And Luther was. He was very frightened, very terrified of dying. Because whenever he died, he would have to stand before the righteous judge and answer for all the things that he had done. And he had no foundation of what he was going to say. Justification. It was all works. So in light of that, he is walking, walking, riding a horse. There's different views, but anyways, he is on his way back to his university in Erfurt, Germany. At this time, Luther is studying law because of his father wanting him to be a upstanding young man. So he's walking back and he gets caught in this thunderstorm and he almost gets struck by lightning. He's almost killed. And so you can imagine having this near-death experience. He's very afraid and he cries out, Saint Anne, I'll become a monk. And we'll get into that, why he calls, calls out to Saint Anne and not uh, to Jesus because they viewed as saints being holy people, and if you went to them, they would put merit upon you. Another works-based view of their religion. So he becomes a monk. He enters into the monastery. Because in that day, a righteous, or a way to become righteous, was by becoming a monk. Because being a monk, denying Pleasures, denying worldly things was, ve- was viewed as being pleasing to God. And that was just what Luther wanted. He wanted to please God. This is at the heart of this man. He wants to please his God, and he doesn't know how. And as we'll see, it's going to torture him for most of his life. So while in the monastery, Luther, like, Pharisee, uh, like uh, Paul, became a Pharisee of Pharisees, Luther becomes a monk of monks. You could say he was the monkiest of them all. He outdid everyone and everything. He would literally torture himself in order to try and please God. He would often not take food or water for three days and would spend up to six hours in the confessional, confessing his sins. And the sins that he would bring up were sins like, today I coveted brother whoever's potato salad. I mean, the man was very sensitive to God's wrath. Everything that he did, he understood as he was falling short. So yes, those sins like that are funny. I mean, come on, potato salad, really? But at the same time, this man was very aware that he was a sinner. And so everything he did, he saw as falling short. Whereas other people just really didn't think about it. Martin Luther was driven to insanity, basically, by it. So he does this to the point that one day his confessor cries out to him, Martin, God is not angry with you. 
You are angry with God. Do you not know that God commands you to hope? Luther was beating himself into the ground. And although he worked very hard, his troubles about salvation did not go away. In fact, the more he did, the more troubled he became. Then comes the opportunity of a lifetime. His uh, leader, his mentor, sends him on monastery business to the empire of Rome, to the Roman city. Now this is a lifetime experience because at that time, Rome was viewed as being the heart of Christendom. And just going there, you could rack up merit. And not only just by going there could you rack up merit, but in Rome, you were supposedly closer to the apostles and to the saints. Their bones, anyways. Because they were no longer there. So he jumps at the chance. But in going there, Martin Luther thinks that he will please God. He will gain the merit to please God. But it's there that he feels more doubtful than ever. Because on upon his arrival at Rome, he sees a spiritual marketplace, basically. These people are handing out merit left and right. Pretty much if you had cash in your pocket, you could replace it with merit. So in that experience, Martin Luther begins to doubt the system. You can imagine for somebody that was very serious about religion, this made Martin Luther think very seriously to doubt what was going on. All of these people just kind of went with it, but then you have this very sensitive monk that sees all of this, and he's like, whoa, it's not right. What's going on? So shortly after his experience to Rome, Luther was transferred to the town of Wittenberg, Germany. And in Wittenberg, Germany, he becomes a professor of theology. His mentor thought that in becoming a professor and having private time with the Bible, because before becoming a professor, you weren't allowed to study the Bible privately. Even being a teacher of the Bible, you were not allowed to interpret it. Only the Pope was viewed as being able to interpret Scripture because he was viewed as being above Scripture. So he becomes professor of theology in Wittenberg. And he begins to have private time reading the Bible. And this is something that Rome is going to seriously regret. So after Luther had been the professor in Wittenberg for a while, there comes an occasion where a name by the name of John Tetzel comes along. And John Tetzel has been authorized by the Pope to bring about a special sale of indulgences because, you see, the Pope is trying to build St. Peter's Church in Rome, and he needs to fund it somehow. So he sends Tetzel, who is especially vulgar and colorful in his language of hell, that he is very easily believed and he very easily manipulates people in giving him their money so that they can escape these pictures of hell that he would often have painted at his little rallies he would also have little jingles. One of them goes like this. When the coin in the coffer rings, the soul from purgatory springs. So in one of those rallies, this is the kind of stuff that you would see and that you would hear. So what is an indulgent and what is purgatory? This goes along with some of the very messed up beliefs that the Roman Catholic Church had. So an indulgent was basically 
viewed as merit, a certificate of merit that the Pope had the keys to let people have. So the Pope initiated this uh, exchange. They were supposed to, anyways, bring about this feeling of repentance. They were to repent and pay, and you would get the certificate of merit. Well, John Tetzel, on the other hand, just told the people that all you had to do is just pay. You know, that kind of made the transaction a lot easier and you were to make a lot more money that way. So the indulgence basically was these people paying for merit to be acceptable before God. Purgatory, so not only were you able to buy merit for yourself, but if you had a loved one that went to hell or known as purgatory, you could buy them out basically with merit, or you could fast-track their way through purgatory, what was basically supposed to purge their sins, hence the word purgatory. They were supposed to purge their sins by going to this place. You would go to purgatory, you would suffer for a while, God would be pleased with you then, to heaven you go. And this man, these people were telling people that they could pay to get out. And your loved ones. So Martin Luther, he hears of this. And at this time, he still believes in indulgences, but he is very firm on repentance. And John Tetzel is preaching in a way that doesn't bring about repentance. And so Luther is horrified. And so in response to Tetzel selling these indulgences in a way that communicated that people didn't really have to repent of their sins, Luther writes what is known as the 95 Theses. And on October 31st, 1517, he nails them to the door of Wittenberg's Castle Church. Now, it's often portrayed in stories and in movies that when Martin Luther did this, he's, you know, he's standing around this massive crowd. People are cheering him on. He's banging these things on here. It didn't go like that. This was very normal. Okay? This was like the announcement post of the community. It was very normal for Luther to go to the door, nail these things up in a very subtle way so people could see it. Martin Luther's plan in writing the 95 Theses originally was to show the people that he wanted to, in a subtle way, have a theological argument about how indulgences were supposed to be used. So in this instant, Martin Luther's still being a good Catholic. He's actually trying to defend the Pope for people like John Tetzel. That's what he's trying to do. But God, on the other hand, had a very different plan for what this list of theses was going to do. So Martin Luther nails them to the door, and these people find it. They see what it's about. They spread it like wildfire. The first person, of course, to go against them is John Tetzel. Who else? He goes against it. It ends up going to the Pope. And the Pope ends up going against it. And a lot of events would play out. I don't have time to get into all of those, but it would end up playing out to where Luther would be held as a heretic. But in the following years, Luther would go back and forth debating people in the Catholic Church. And in the midst of this, God would continue to strengthen Luther's convictions using passages like Romans 1.17. This was Luther's breakthrough of understanding the gospel. 
In Romans 1.17, God opened Luther's eyes to see that it was by faith in Christ alone that one was justified and made righteous before God. And it was in that moment that Luther said he had felt altogether born again and had entered paradise itself through open gates. Also, God would continue to open Luther's eyes to see that the Bible itself had supreme authority, not the Pope. And you can imagine that did not go over well at all. For that, Luther would be deemed a heretic. And in 1521, he would be summoned to stand before the Emperor Charles V at the Diet or Diet of Worms to recant all the things that he was writing and teaching against the Catholic Church. Luther would end up, after asking for 24 hours to think about this, giving this response. He is standing, in in giving this response, he is standing before the emperor and this council that is basically him against the church as it was known in that day. He gives them this response. Unless I am refuted and convicted by testimonies of Scripture or by clear reason, since I believe neither popes nor the councils by themselves, for it is clear that they have often erred and contradicted themselves. I imagine they didn't like that part very much. I am conquered by the Holy Scriptures. I have quoted. And my conscience is captive to the Word of God. I cannot and will not withdraw anything, since it is neither safe nor right to do anything against one's conscience. Here I stand. God help me. Amen. That response, that little speech, as it were, is viewed as the here I stand speech. And God would use those words to turn the world upside down. God ended up using a very unlikely monk to be the battering ram, as he's often referred, as or to the Reformation, of the Reformation. He would also use Luther to translate the Bible into the German language. Martin Luther had a passion for the ordinary, for the common man, to be able to hold the Bible in his hand and be able to read the gospel for himself. So he would use him to translate the Bible into the German language. God would use Luther to influence many upon just the nation of Germany, including a man by the name of William Tyndale. I love William Tyndale so much. I've never met this man, obviously. I don't know a great deal about him, but I love him very much. And you'll see why, I think, in a few moments. William Tyndale was a priest and a university-trained linguist, which is a person that knows several languages and is able to translate these languages. So he is a linguist in England. He, too, was wanting to see reform. Tyndale's passion, a lot like Luther's, was to get the Bible into the common man's hand. That way he could read God's promises for himself. There's one scene recorded that I think describes William Tyndale's passion for the gospel well. It reads, Master Tyndale happened to be in the company of a learned man, and in communing and disputing with him drove him to that issue that the learned man said, We were better without God's law than the popes. Master Tyndale, hearing that, answered him. 
I defy the Pope and all his laws, and said, If God spare my life ere many years, I will cause a boy that drives the plow to know more of the Scriptures than you do. That's amazing. Isn't it? Because, I don't know about you, but I'm an ordinary man. And in that day, I would probably have been the boy driving the plow. So, William Tyndale is gripped by good news. By God's grace, Tyndale would succeed in this translation of the Bible. In 1525, Tyndale's English New Testament was published. And thanks to an invention called the printing press, it spread like wildfire, which made the authorities, of course, very furious. In 1536, William Tyndale was strangled and burned at the stake, viewed as a heretic. His crime was wanting the common man to be able to read the Bible for himself. Because of that, he was burned. Well, first he was strangled, then he was burned at stake after walking past a pile of his books being burned along with him. His famous last words, were, Lord, open the King of England's eyes. That prayer would eventually be answered by God. God would come to open the King of England's eyes, and He would allow the Bible to be used and presented in the churches in English. William Tyndale was the first person to translate all the New Testament and most of the Old Testament from the original Hebrew and Greek language. His translation would influence virtually all of the English Bibles after it, including in 1611, when a group of scholars come together and they produce what is known as the King James Version Bible. And I personally... Whenever I became a Christian, the ESV Bible had come out, and that's what I have used, what I'm using today. But for those of you who have spent most of your life reading and studying the King James Version, I think you enjoy this bit of information. So the King James Version, for the past 300 years or so, has been the main Bible that people have read and studied and preached from. I found uh, one estimate that said that when these scholars came together and produced the King James Version Bible, that 83% of the New Testament that they translated were the words of William Tyndale. 76% of the Old Testament were the words of William Tyndale. A very large portion of the King James Version, and even today in the ESV, you have phrases that are the very words that William Tyndale translated into English. Doesn't that just make you love your Bible more? I mean, first of all, it's God's Word to sinful people that need good news. On top of that, God used men, ordinary men, sinful men, using their mistakes to translate this word into English, into other languages, and they died for it. 
Some of them would die. Martin Luther, God spared his life. But William Tyndale would die for his faith and for translating the Bible. So the next time you hold your Bible in your hand and you read it, remember that men shed their blood so that you could have it in your own language and that I could preach to you this morning. It would not be an overstatement to say that William Tyndale was the father of modern English. His translations would not only go, to, go on to influence the writing of the English Bible, but would go on to uh, influence people like William Shakespeare. So yes, it would not be an overstatement to say he's the father of modern English. That's how influential this man was. So, as I begin to move to a conclusion, I have two questions that I really want to bring before you. So what causes things like the Reformation? What causes movements like this? What brings them about? What fuels them? What drives them? And why does it matter to you? And why does it matter to me? What's the big deal? I want you to turn to Ephesians chapter 2. I'll be reading starting in verse 1. Now, as I read this passage to you again, I want you to be thinking along the lines of what we just talked about. Imagine you are one of these people who have for the first time heard the Bible in your own language. You don't have your own Bible, but people flock to these churches or whoever had one just to have it read. I mean, there's one account of these priests getting mad because they weren't listening to their sermon. They were reading the Bible and listening to it be read. They didn't care about what this dude was saying. It's like, I got the Scriptures before me, man. I don't need you. Now, that doesn't mean to say that that goes against the idea of being a preacher and all of that. Don't misunderstand me in that way. But they were excited because they were not dependent as far as being able to understand the Bible on someone else. They were able to read it for themselves. So I want you to put yourself in those shoes as I read this passage. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. Now imagine hearing this part right here being read. But, 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 there's a but there. God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which He loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. I wonder what it is like to hear that. And raised us up with Him and seated us with Him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus so that in the coming ages He might show the immeasurable riches of His grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. 
For we are His workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Today, you and I, because of what God did through men like Martin Luther, William Tyndale, and a host of many more, I could spend hours naming men throughout history that fought and died for this truth so that people could understand it. The ordinary, the common man could understand the good news of Jesus Christ. And why does it matter for us today? Why does all this make a difference to us? Although you and I may not be in the form of religious slavery, although I would maybe argue that in some ways, according to if you were to walk in some churches and how they preach. But though we're not under Roman Catholic religious slavery, the same soul-destroying disease that is the slave driver of all mankind, which is sin, still exists today. And you do not have to go very far to see it. All you have to do is turn on your TV or something along those lines. You can see what sin is doing to people. How it destroys the soul. You're being basically rotting from the inside out until one day you die. And then you stand before God. And like Martin Luther, what do you have to say? What do you have to say to God whenever He asks you? When He calls you to an account of everything that you've done? What ground do you stand on? Stand on the ground that Martin Luther stood on. By faith, these promises are accepted. They are merited to you because of what Jesus has done for me, for you. Also, you and I can hold the Bibles in our hand. We can read it. We can interpret it for ourselves with the help of the body of believers, which is the priesthood, not just one priest, but the whole church being the priesthood of Jesus Christ, being His ambassadors, the whole church. These people cried out for freedom. And God, through many men, gave it to them. People are still crying out for freedom today. And you and I have the good news of the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ to preach to them, to share with them, to live out before them. May we do so. Father, I come before You and I thank You. Oh, my thank yous are... They they fail in comparison to what has been done for us. I can never be thankful enough. There's nothing that I could do to repay what You have done for us in what we have talked about this morning. In the Gospel. In the good news of Jesus. Not only is there justification, but God, You give us delight. There's delight in the Lord Jesus Christ. Delight that we cannot imagine here or there in heaven when we look upon Him with our eyes, with our physical eyes. We live in faith now and one day it will be in sight. I thank You for men like Martin Luther, like William Tyndale, like John Wycliffe, like John Calvin, many others that You have used to structure, to bring the church into the truth, into the light that it stands in today. But Father, darkness is still here. It still is upon our heels. 
But as I prayed before I started preaching, Lord, we still hear Jesus' words in the midst of all of this. I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. May we rest on that promise. In Christ's name I pray. Amen.